Hi, it's Mark from Andersonville Antiques. We just want to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and a great Happy New Year. Happy Holidays from Candiality. Come see us at 5225 North Clark Street in Andersonville. Happy Holiday from Cass Hardware. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I just want to say Happy Holidays from Casona Home Furnishings. And uh, we wish you a very successful and happy 2019. Happy holidays from CBD Kratom in Andersonville. Hi, this is Georgia Jones from Chicago Mindful Psychotherapy. And we wish you peace, joy, clarity during this season, and groundedness in the midst of what can potentially be really crazy. Matthew here from Cowboys and Astronauts wishing you glad tidings and warm cheer this holiday season. Come see us for all of your holiday needs. We'll be here 11 to 7, Monday through Saturday, Sundays 11 to 6, all throughout the season. We're at 1478 West Emmerdale. See you soon. Happy Life Day from everybody here at Alley Cat Comics. We're located at uh, 5304 North Clark Street uh, in the rear suite. We love Andersonville. Always Andersonville. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Joelle. Today we are joined by Scott Martin, owner of Svea Restaurant at 5236 North Clark and Simon's Tavern at 5210 North Clark. Since the Depression, Simon's has anchored Clark Street just north of Foster. And Scott has been an anchor of this community. His love for this neighborhood is effusive. You can see Scott walking his dog, greeting patrons at the restaurant and bar, waving hello off his, the rooftop connected to his apartment above Tilly's, or dressed up as a Viking multiple times of year, most famously during Midsummerfest. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing just fine and excited to be here with the two of you. Well, we feel like we got you in at a perfect time of the year here during the holidays because you are a fantastic storyteller and we kind of think you should start wherever you want. But what has it been like to live in this neighborhood for most of your life? Pretty amazing, to be honest with you. I've been really lucky. I grew up in the house that my mother, I was born and raised in the house that my mother was born and raised in. Um, As a child, I skated at Rainbow Ice Arena. There were constantly Swedish things happening in this community as a child. Um, my mom was also the secretary at Ebenezer Lutheran Church, so we were really part of a big community. The parades that happened every October uh, were amazing parades when the politicians from all over the state were actually coming to this community to get the Scandinavian vote. And I'm talking parades that had full marching bands, Shriners on magic carpet go-karts going around, and, and uh, thousands and thousands of people here. So it was a very exciting place to live as a child. And do you have a favorite memory that sticks out from the childhood days? I'm the lucky kid at nine years old who rode the WGN parade float during the Andersonville Day Parade of 1969 with Ray Rayner and Chauncey the Duck. <laughs> well, Scott, Svea means mother of Sweden and open to meet the needs of Chicago's substantial Swedish population. Can you tell us about the history of Svea and its original owner, Kurt Matiasen? Well... We bought the restaurant from Kurt Matiasen, and I'll tell you, it was a really neat thing that had happened. Unfortunately for him, he was sick for a third time, and he came down to Simon's Tavern two years after I'd bought the bar and uh, said he didn't think he was going to be able to survive this time, this battle, and he said he was so proud that I took care of Simon's the way I did. Maybe I would be interested in buying his building and his restaurant, so that's how that happened. 
Svea is a really neat little place. Some of the photographs in there from the 20s. You got to imagine that restaurant's been called Svea since the mid-20s. There aren't many restaurants in the city that are like that. So it's been kind of neat, this challenge of uh, going from bar ownership to actually having a restaurant. But it made it a little bit easier because it's breakfast, breakfast and lunch. So it's been a really neat experience owning a restaurant like Svea. And do you know much about the first owner before Kurt? No. We've had, in the 22 years we've had it, we've had about 10 people come in and say that either their relative owned it or they owned it. And <laughs> it's I have, mine. I have, it back. <laughs> I have no idea if they did or didn't. And the Viking breakfast there is said to be a favorite hangover cure. What does that consist of? So Falker of sausage, pancakes, eggs, um, bread. Yeah, and potatoes. It's a full meal. You'll be full, and you will feel better. But the little Swedish cheeseburger we have over there that's really greasy kind of can do the trick also. It's a gigantic Swedish meatball pressed into a potato, into a, into a patty. Wow, I don't think I've ever actually had that one before. Oh, our cheeseburger rules. Yeah, next on my list. That's our quote for the top of the podcast notes <laughs> cheeseburgers roll i know our cheeseburgers roll oh, okay our cheeseburgers do roll yeah. <laughs> do you have another favorite menu item my pickled herring so that's a real like home recipe pickled herring of course this time of year you come in for lutefisk now lutefisk is only sold this time of the year right during the holidays and its reputation is not one that people smile upon it's like oh no not that stinky fish um, but you got to imagine how inventive these Vikings were. That literally goes back to Viking days when they were catching cod in abundance and then preserving it in lye. But what happens is you soak it in the fish into water for about a week to, to extract the lye from the fish, and it turns into this opaque, gelatinous, really smelly fish that has really no taste. So we'll get a lot of the old Swedes will come back to the neighborhood, and they will eat at Svea, but they'll have their lutefisk. And it's kind of a fun thing to have, actually, traditionally. And does anyone sing the song to them Well, now? you know, my dad always sang the song. Now, dad is kind of retired for the most part. I'm buying his part of the restaurant from him now. And he's uh, he probably won't be in this year. So I'm going to have to probably force myself to sing. So get ready, everybody. Do we get a preview? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of herring, you bought Simon's Tavern in 1994 from the son of the original owner. The bar was a Prohibition-era speakeasy opened by Simon Lundberg in 1934 and is said to be haunted by the ghost of a woman in a tangled love affair from that time. Tell us more about Simon's. Simon's is the fourth oldest bar in the city of Chicago right now. It's a 60-foot-long mahogany bar built in 1934. It's an amazing place. So as a child, I used to go in there and hear my dad sing with Swedish glee clubs. I have stories of my mother and her two sisters having to go in there on Friday night to pull their father out of there because their mother told them, go get daddy out of Simon's. Um, as a child, my mom, of course, was the secretary at Ebenezer Luther Church. So we would have these uh, Saturday functions at the church and you would hear like these old Swedish guys kind of whispering to each other. So Sven, what are you going to do tonight? Well, Oli, I think I'm going to go over to Ebenezer on Clark Street. So us kids from the church, we followed these two old guys once, and they went into Simon's through the back door. Well, we went right in there, too, 
And I don't know how the heck we got hanging out there. We were like 10 or 12 year old kids and we were hanging out in the bar, not drinking, of course, but hanging out in there. So it was really the community place for a lot of the congregants of Ebenezer Luther Church. That was their other church. And when I was able to purchase the bar, I actually asked Pastor Koch, told him up in the auditorium attic, there's those old light fixtures. Can I get three of them? And he said, what do you need those for? And I said, well, I just bought the church. And he went, excuse me? I said, over on Clark. And he went, you bought Simon's Tavern? So even the pastor knew what the other church in the neighborhood was. What is it like to run a bar? Well, you hear people all the time, like, will say to me, like, wow, that's got to be a rough life. I've had nothing but a blast. You know, it was kind of one of those things. When I grew up, everybody at church was really, really fun, sociable, caring, compassionate. So my dad's job, sometimes, most times, he would come home kind of crabby. And I remember thinking, like, so in the neighborhood, there were all these little bars. They were all over the place. My mom and dad used to visit five or six different bars on Clark Street. My grandfather, my mother's father, drove a trolley down Clark Street. Um, and I, if we ever tagged along with them, everybody in the bar was having fun. So I kind of grew up, by the time I was 12, I kept thinking like, man, I'm never going to have an office job. My dad's crabby. I'm going to be a minister. I'm going to own a bar. They're kind of neat in the way that they're the same a little bit especially in a neighborhood bar if you care about people it's amazing how many people might need a hand every once in a while um and they're not always in the best way so you've been a, over there i've been able to really do some nice things i think um look at this week we have coming up next week tuesday night is ebenezer luther church comes and we do a glug and carols night which benefits the choir department of ebenezer lutheran church and there'll be real Christian carols being sung in that bar. And it's as close as I've gotten to It's a Wonderful Life for me. And are you at the bar seven days a week? In and out. Like back in the day, I was really there all the time. And, and that does have a little bit of an effect. But I was lucky. I was able to be with my kids all day long, taking them to school, picking them up from school, bringing them to soccer practice or skating lessons or choir or band practice. Yeah, so... That, it's given me a great privilege to kind of really be there for my children. Um, but yeah, nighttime, you're always gone. Used to be. So lately, as I'm getting a little bit older, I'm 30 years almost owning bars. And 40 years, I've been working in bars since I was 14 years old. I worked at Alice's Tap that used to be on Ravenswood, right by Catalpa. And uh, I, I really had a lot of fun. Like, that's been my thing, having fun. <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> Um, and one of the really fun things about Simon's is this basement, which I don't know if a lot of people have had the um, opportunity to check out, but you and I got to go down there when we photographed you for the neighborhood guide. Um, and it was very much set up to be like a speakeasy. Can you tell everyone a little bit about so, what they'd see down there? So while I was negotiating with Roy Lundberg about buying his father's and his bar, uh, one day he, we had talked for about three months and one day he called me up and said, why don't you come over? So I went over and he took me down into the basement. Now I knew a history, all the history of the upstairs part of the bar. And as we got downstairs, I looked at this one door and it's this gold leaf painted door that says NN club members only. And it's got a peephole in it. So I know exactly it's a speakeasy door. So I go, Roy, what's up with the door? And he goes, Oh, this is my father's old speakeasy. Well, I must have had 15 different subconscious voices screaming in my head like, 
heck yes. <laughs> I kind of really love that old-fashioned bar stuff. And I love the way old-fashioned bars ran, how they did become parts of a community. And they, were, they used to be banks, correct? Well, no, upstairs, when he built the bar, after Prohibition was repealed, mm-hmm. Simon, knowing that the people of the community who suffered after the Depression but who are now getting jobs. Well, he constructed the bar as prohibitions repealed in 33. We're, yeah, we're coming up upon that date pretty soon, December. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, what's today's date? The third? Today's the fourth, and this will probably air. De- December 5th is the repeal mm-hmm. of prohibition. So I think I have something going on at the bar tomorrow night, too, with some kind of whiskey that has something to do with, I don't know, I'll have to tell you guys later. <laughs> we'll um, put it in the notes when right. this airs. Okay, yeah. so uh, when I get uh, downstairs... He says that this is his father's old speakeasy. And so this is kind of a neat story. I go like, what was it like down here? Now, you got to imagine this is a pretty older guy right now. And he explained, well, there were five tables with four chairs at each table. And the whiskey was in boxes on the floor. And I went, what was it like down here? (laughs) And he goes, well, when I would come down in the morning to say good morning to my father, the men were smoking cigars and pipe tobacco and cigarettes and speaking of business and politics, uh, of which I had no interest. And I went, what was it like down here? Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, when I would come down in the evening to say goodnight to my father. So right away, I thought, well, this is going to be a good story. That's got to be 15 hours of drinking time. So this is going to be funny. He goes, the men were still smoking the cigars and the pipe tobacco and the cigarettes and drinking the whiskey. And he leans across to me and he whispers, but now they were speaking of women. (laughs) And I could not believe how cute this little old man was because that was truly his nine-year-old boy memory. And I wanted to hug him so bad. And then he stepped over by the desk and he said, you know, my father sat here and then I have sat here and I've decided you should sit here next. And that's how he told me he was selling me that bar. That still gets me really emotional. That's such a beautiful story. Because I understood the privilege of owning the bar because I knew it was really a cool place. But then the responsibility was something that's kept me probably from turning into a complete maniac owning a bar because the place has to be respected for what they did. Imagine Simon's immigration to America, what he did. That bar after Prohibition was, was repealed and he built the bar. He built the bar to have a feel of one that was on a ship called the Normandy. Didn't set sail till May of 35, but May of 34 in the American print media, there was all this attention being paid to this beautiful, grandiose ship. And he literally thought, I'm going to build a bar that'll feel like one on that boat. So the people in this community who can never afford to go there, but who've always supported me, they could come here and feel like the wealthy people. And that's the bank you were mentioning. In the patron side of the bar, he built a bulletproof bank. Because of the stock market crash of 29, when the banks lost everybody's money, people had great distrust of the banks. As 34 is here and they're getting their jobs again, they have great distrust of the banks, so they're now going to the hardware store to cash or check or the bakery or the, or the butcher shop. But those places were all taking a percentage of the check for the risk of cashing it. So he had this other idea to give back to the people. He put word around the whole north side, you come here Friday to cash your check, I'll take none of your money and I'll have a free sandwich for you. So all these guys, but what happened was is as these guys are coming in who've gotten jobs, they're now coming in with their buddies. No, you go over by Simon's to cash your check. They won't take none of your money. You'll get a free sandwich. So look at the business move that was back then. But what eventually happened was is a lot of other immigrants still coming in the 20s to America from Scandinavia. Now it's 1934, and if they were having a tough time finding a job, they were told, 
oh, you looking for a job? You have to go talk to Simon. Having known these guys who sold the liquor during Prohibition, these guys were now, with the money, were starting construction companies. So you'd go in there and you'd end up maybe finding a job, but you obliged Simon by cashing your truck and drinking your whiskey and your beer there. So next time you're in there, make sure you go look for that, the bank door. It's pretty, um, once you know it's there, it's pretty obvious yeah. that that's what it was. Yeah, it's got right? a fold little teller's window. Mm -hmm. The patina on the wood, you can actually see where Simon's two fists sat there <laughs> and then how he pulled the checks mm -hmm. inside. So yeah. cool. And Scott, your dad worked there for a period of time as a bartender, correct? This is a pretty interesting story. My dad had retired in about, I think, 94, 95, right when I bought the bar. So there was a, a day that um, my dad called me up. I think he was the first one to call me up. And he said, uh, listen, Scott, do you think you can maybe find something for me to do? I got to get out of here. So he'd worked for 42 years or, or so for the Chicago Northwestern Railroad. So it was kind of a fun. I said, yeah, dad, I'll see what I can do. It wasn't only about three days later that I got a phone call and it was my mom and my mom was going, Scott, dad's moved all the Tupperware in the kitchen. I can't find anything. Can you please find something for him to do? <laughs> so that's how my dad ended up working at the bar from that story. You know, after he retired, all of a sudden he's planted in mom's house and now he's disrupting everything for her. And they were both like he was trying to get out and she was trying to get him out. So the timing was pretty well. Yeah, he'd come in with a with the white shirt, tie, and an apron, and do the old fashioned thing. He wiped down every single glass every day, made everything sparkle in that bar. And is it true there was a rule where bartenders couldn't sit down or weren't supposed to sit down? They were supposed to lean. Yeah, you'd, if I caught somebody behind that bar with a bar still sitting there, I would move the bar still. <laughs> <laughs> Like go to the basement I would want, you can hear the hesitation to where I would want to blow up and go like, what are you doing? But no, it's just, no, you, that's a neat bar to work. When you're by yourself, long, long bars like that are a blast to work. It is funny that like if even only two people are in the bar, one sits at one end and one sits at the other end, inevitably it's all the time. It's actually kind of funny. Mm -hmm. So you, you got to keep walking. You got to keep moving. And I know... Um, Oftentimes you can go into Simon's and see kind of classic old movies. You have a you have a rule about the TVs. I know we talked about this, but could you refresh my memory? Like so, what is allowed to be on the TV? So this is my thought. So I I kind of thought that sports on TV was the dumbification of America. I still wonder why I, I can go to a a uh, like wildfire restaurant, sit in the in the lounge part of the place, and still order a forty eight dollar steak in the Connecticut South Utah game is on and I have no idea it's just it's really bad art if anything so uh once I was able to get Turner Classic Movies in the bar yeah that rule is leave something that's more artful on the TV that people can maybe converse about as opposed to like sitting there going well, who is this wait that wasn't a foul as opposed to no conversation happened I've seen some really amazing conversations happen there's a young girl that works out the bar who has a master's in movie history. Um, and literally from her sitting at the bar as a customer, loving the bar because the old movies were on. And she's really a good bartender. She's a lot of fun. And it's interesting to talk to her about the old movies where there's real dialogue. There's real 
like wonderful things that are on the wall. And that's my favorite thing about the old movies is looking, well, look at the drapes, man. Those are so cool. <laughs> Do you have a favorite movie? No. 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 Well, that brings us to one of our favorite topics of this holiday season. So Simon's is known for its hot glug. Hopefully I said that correctly in the winter. And Scott's creation, the glug slushy in the summer, which is especially popular during um, our big uh, events of the summer, like Midsummer Fest and the sidewalk sale. You can come in and refresh yourself in there. Um, What is glug exactly? And can you talk to us about the proper way to serve it and maybe some of the components? I know you don't want to give away your secret I won't tell you I will not tell you exactly how many cloves go into my 15 gallon pot (laughs) so glug um, is a traditional Scandinavian Christmas drink Uh, port wine is the base of all glugs Um, in port wine you cook raisins cinnamon stick cloves cardamom seed orange peel and almonds in my uh, in my bar in 94, I cooked 70 gallons of glug. Each of the last six years, that was the first year, each of the last six years, I've cooked over 2,300 gallons of glug. It's served about five ounces. Uh, you put some of the drunken raisins, which my brother and I learned by the time we were 14 years old on Christmas Eve after church service and everybody came back to our house for the party and all the parents seemed to be getting happier as they drank glug. <laughs> We knew to sneak into the refrigerator and take spoonfuls of the raisins, and eventually we were as happy as the adults. <laughs> so you put some of the, in serving the glug, you actually put some of the golden raisins, the yellow raisins that I use. I don't use a dark raisin. Use a yellow one because it's sweeter, so you get more natural sugars out of that as opposed to putting in granulated sugar, which will just give you a bad headache when you have too much glug. Um, uh and fresh slivered almonds as far as serving. And then we always serve a pepper cocker with it, a little ginger thin with it. And then there's a tradition of placing the ginger thin into your hand before you sip your glug and pressing after making a wish, pressing in the center of the cookie. And if it breaks into three pieces, then you take a sip of your glug and supposedly your wish would come true. So it's kind of funny, like that tradition, uh, when people do it and they're like, they've never heard of it. And it, so now every time they come in, they're like, I'm getting my cookie, right? <laughs> Hopefully that their wish will come true. So for me and my glug, I start out by using these 15-gallon pots uh, with about three gallons of water. And I'll put all the seasonings in there and reduce that water down to about a gallon. Then about 30 ounces of real sugar goes into it, granulated sugar. And then all the port wine, the 14 gallons of port wine go in. And then that'll cook for two to two and a half hours till the taste is what I want. Then it gets covered up and set on the floor, cool down overnight. And then in the morning, brandy, which is a derivative of the grape, goes into the big pot with the port wine. And then two other secrets. That you'll then just nice have to come try. taste. Yeah, yeah. Nice try. <laughs> she looked at me like, well, are you going to tell us or not? So for someone who hasn't been to Simon's before, what would you say would be the kind of Simon's experience for them. Like, how could you get that person well, in? Well, my, my hope would be that you really feel like you're in Andersonville. You're in a bar in Andersonville that it has that feel of our community here. Um, heck, I love Andersonville so much. I just, uh, I'm amazed at how cool the neighborhood has always been to me, but how cool it's actually really is now. You know, people love this neighborhood. If you go into Simon's, you'll end up meeting people a bunch of people from the neighborhood. And then if they're not from the neighborhood, they're there because in their neighborhood, there isn't a bar like Simon's. You know, I've been really fortunate that way. Um, 
hopefully all of my bartenders are introducing people to new people. If I'm in there, you know I'm talking. And I don't stop talking sometimes. But giving a nickel tour and telling the history of the bar and taking people down into the speakeasy. I don't know. How to, How do you describe something like that? I think you just did. Yeah, okay. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Okay, yeah. It is a feeling, though. So, I mean, it is a feeling when you walk in that you know you're somewhere different, especially. Yeah, those kind mm-hmm. of bars. Look at... When I bought my first bar in 92, there was... 8,800 tavern licenses. There are less than 800 of them. Bars like Simon's, those are the old ones. They're almost all gone. There's not many of them left. So it is, it, it's kind of fun for me knowing that when people do walk in there, they kind of have this feeling that they're in a special place. And I've been fortunate just because of that. The first bar I bought, you know, it'd be a call to the police every two days because it was by Wrigley Field. Nobody cared. You know, over here, people care. And I think about all of our businesses in this community. People really do care. They hope they succeed. They want to see the neighborhood stay kind of small, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were recently honored at the Swedish American Museum's annual gala alongside your father for your continued efforts and commitment to the Swedish community. What did it feel like to receive that honor? Well, for me here, and this is what I said, I think the first lines out of my mouth that evening were like, so for a kid who really didn't pursue academics which, with much vigor and kind of failed at that stuff, it was like receiving a Nobel Prize for me. Yeah, it's a, that was a big honor. I, and I've always hoped that for Simons and for Svea, that the way those, pla- those two places have significance in the history of the community, that I was helping keep them alive. So... Yeah, they said thank you to me. It's a pretty nice thing. Well, uh, we are at the point in our episode where we like to ask you if you had the opportunity to switch places with an Andersonville business or business owner for a day or multiple days, who you would pick and why. And if you have a few, that's all right, too. Hmm. Well, the places that I would have loved to have like worked and taken over were a couple of the delis that were here, Erickson's and Wickstrom's. I would have loved to have spent three days as like running those places to have learned something. Um, I'm really sorry that Pastoro's gone because I love cheese. Uh, and that would have been a fun place to kind of learn something that eventually in the service industry I could have turned into something else. Um, Transistor, of course. Who cannot mention Transistor in this story of like working i think this is one of the neatest stores in the neighborhood because it has local artists in it so that's kind of a neat thing too that that, this store feels like part of the community let me think what other place kalo might be an amazing place to i mean it's just unbelievable what a monster business i mean it really is something Mm -hmm. and it's been here my mom and dad's first date was at the kalo theater so um Kalo's always had a significant part in my life. Like, you know, even though those guys didn't have the Kalo Theater, but it's called Kalo, so it means something. And as a kid, that was the pizza place we went to, you know. Um, that's about it, I think, you know. Okay. Yeah. I would have yeah. loved to have been able to have a chance to take in over one of those delis. Mm-hmm. I is, mean, is there I, another business that you wish was still around besides the delis? The bakeries. The bakeries. Wait, when I was a kid, there were about 15 Swedish-owned bakeries in this neighborhood. It's To me, as a kid, it always seemed like it was this. It was like there was a hardware store, there was a deli, there was uh, a tavern, and then there was a bakery. 
And then the next four storefronts were just reorganized in that in a different way, but they were still just bakery, tavern, butcher shop, and and bar. I mean, the bars around here. So I have old pictures that there's about 25 guys that were in the Andersonville Tavern Owners Association that would march in the parades. 25 bars were on the strip, basically from Winnemac to Bryn Mawr. They were, you know where uh, Little Big Wolf is? Yeah, Little Bad Wolf. Okay, Little Mm -hmm. Bad Wolf. All right. That bar used to be an archery bar. That long, long building, literally, there was a bar. As a kid, there was a bar in the front, and in the back was a full archery range. You got to imagine, like, even at Simon's, where we show on the mural on the wall, it's a hunting scene. In the 30s and 40s in this community, in the 50s, most of these men all, by the time they succeeded, they bought property up north. And they would go, I have photographs of black bear hanging on hooks outside of the bar Simon's. Hanging there upside down with the blood streaming streaming down the sidewalk. It sounds goofy, but they put it outside to let the community know that they would feed you. Right? The the meat was used for something. Yeah. So that bar down there. Imagine having a bar that had an archery range. That would be amazing. I would love to own a bar that had an archery range in it for hunters to come and hang out at. That's kind of the purest form of hunting too. Bow and arrow. And then there were a lot of bowling alleys at one point, supposedly, too, but none to be seen right now. So we need one. So the Kalo Theater, Mm -hmm. where the brown elephant is, that was a bowling alley as a kid. I can remember walking up that ramped area to where all the bowling alleys were. Yeah. Yep. There was the Sip and Straw. So thank goodness George's is here because as a kid, Sip and Straw was the ice cream place to go to. So thank God George's is here because they do a nice job. Um, Do you have a favorite? Ice cream flavor from your childhood? I'm unfortunately just like a vanilla guy with Nestle's quick like sprinkled on top of it. At our at our house, my poor little brother, Tim, my sister Valerie was the queen and I was the king and we would have ice cream and we would sit there speaking in an English accent, having my brother who was our servant sprinkle <laughs> just a little more <laughs> sprinkle, please. <laughs> and my brother, Tim, used to have to sprinkle the chocolate on so vanilla ice cream with Nestle's quick on it still for me. Yeah. And Scott, what was it like to raise your family in this neighborhood? Oh, really cool. You know, I still to this day have people who don't have businesses here anymore who ask me how my kids are. And I show them pictures and they're, they were really interested in my children being okay. And yeah, you know, we did a lot of stuff. We went to Foster Avenue Beach every day, just like I did with peanut butter, jelly and sand sandwiches. And that's where we spent our summers, like walking down to the beach, just like I did with my mom and and dad, you know. So, look at I was I'm lucky. They they were right here doing the same things I was doing. You know, I don't know how many people get that opportunity. We all kind of move around a lot, you know, nowadays. So I'm in, and I I hope I never leave this neighborhood unless I, of course, go to Mexico for three months, January, February, and March, <laughs> and then come back. Of course. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for being here. And thank you for listening to Always Andersonville, the podcast. For more information about Scott, please visit him at the bar or say hi on the street. Show notes on today's episode can be found at andersonville.org. Thank you. Thank you. Always Andersonville, the podcast, is engineered and edited by Andy Miles in Studio C at Transistor, a gallery, shop, performance, recording, and teaching space located at 5224 North Clark Street. 
Have your own podcast idea? The studio is available to rent. Please call 872-208-5877 or stop by the store for details.